You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Well, students are starting to return to special schools around now across the country. There's much relief for students and parents and teachers alike. We're going to go to one now to our southern editor, Pascal Sheehy, who's joining us from Ballincollig in Cork. What's the scene like there, Pascal, this morning? Well, there's a lot of excitement amidst all the rain and the cold here this morning, Mary. Welcome to Our Lady of Good Counsel Special School in Ballancolic, where the doors reopened for the first time in almost two months at 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, Our Lady of Good Counsel caters for pupils aged from 5 to 18 with moderate intellectual learning difficulties. So what's happening today is half of the school's 68 pupils are returning today and the other half will be back next Monday and after that then they will alternate between two and three day weeks. Uh, I have a range of people to talk to here so let's go first to Lorraine Desmond. Lorraine, you are both a teacher teacher here and a parent of two pupils, Alex, uh, who is 12, and Rian, who is 11, and both of those are with us as well. As a parent, first of all, uh, Lorraine, uh, what has the last two months been like homeschooling the boys, and how do you feel about having them back in school this morning? I suppose, Pascal, overall it's been a challenge. You know, homeschooling any child is hard during a pandemic, but homeschooling children with additional needs has been a challenge. However, they've done it really well, and we've had really good support. Um, They've had live Zooms every day, and then if the form wasn't there for live classes, we've had Seesaw to work at at our own pace. So it's been very exciting from that point of view that they've had lots of interaction with their friends. However, it's an anxious time as well, coming back to school and sending your children with underlying conditions back in a pandemic. It's, It's something we've never done, and hopefully we'll never have to do again so I am a little anxious as well this morning. You're a teacher what has the homeschooling been like for you? Again a challenge Um, now we've made the best of it and I've had all my children online every day for live classes and again they've had seesaw but it's just not the same as face to face and it's very hard to meet needs however progress has been made they have learned and we've made the best of a really horrendous situation. Have you concerns about returning to work yourself as a teacher and the risk that exposes you to? And are you in any way conflicted this morning in wearing both a parent's hat and a teacher's hat? Um, Of course there's conflict, but I suppose internally it's bringing COVID home to my family is my main concern, you know, and trying to keep my family safe. Um, And then, of course, trying to keep the children in school safe. Now, we did really well before, so I'm confident that we'll, we'll do our very best to keep everybody safe, but I'm anxious, yeah. So let's hear from the two boys. Alex, how do you feel about being back at school this morning? Good. Yeah, what are you... Are you excited? Yeah. Why are you excited? To see my SNAs. Your SNAs and? My, my staff. Your staff. And who else? My teacher. My teacher. And your? Friends. Your friends. And what about, what about Rian? How do you feel about being back at school? To see my kids, my SNAs and Una. Yeah. To have lunch. Yeah. To have lunch. Yeah. You're excited. We come on holiday and... And Conan Roland and Lily. And Lily, wow. To see Mary and and Monica and Una. Oh, they're all getting a mention. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. Donald Hegarty, you are an SNA here at Our Lady of Good Counsel. Um, How does it feel about being back to school this morning? Um, I suppose we are a bit apprehensive about coming back in the middle of a pandemic, but um, a lot of time, sorry, excuse me, we are... We're kind of all these kids have where their social outlet, where their education, where their respite, so that has to come into play as well. A lot of people were talking about the challenges of teaching through Zoom and Teams and the other apps that were being used, but uh, describe what you were able to do with the kids uh, and the law of sessions that you had with them and explain what law is. Well, LOV is kind of adapted sign language for children with additional needs and what we run here in the school is the LOV choir where we learn songs and we teach the kids the signs to the words of the songs. So we decided to set up the LOV choir through Zoom and what we did is I recorded the signs of all the signs, we recorded a video of all the signs and I put that on YouTube, then I put a video of me signing the signs to the song. And so the kids could learn at their own pace and in their own homes. And I found that, I found the kids actually learned better 
than being in person here because they've no distractions. They're at home in their own comfortable rooms. They're running their own computers with their family and they found it worked better. Do you feel safe being safe back here at school this morning? Um, that's a tough one to ask. I, I don't know. It's, I suppose it's as safe as it can be. We can only do what we can do. Like This is what we have to do. We have to come in. It's up for us to keep the kids safe and that is a worry. Um, their numbers are still high. It is worrying me bringing it home to my family. Ashling Power, your principal of Our Lady of Good Counsel, uh, describe your feelings. Um, look, I am excited. I would have to say there is there is a level of excitement around the school this morning. There's a buzz, um, and you know people are are glad to be back. There's an appetite to be to be back um, at school doing what we do well and doing what we do best. But that 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 feeling of of excitement. Uh, Side by side, then, with a feeling of, of anxiety, as, as the others have mentioned. Um, you know, we're still in, in the middle of a pandemic, and that anxiety um, is, is a very real feeling, you know, also, and it's understandable and reasonable. But overall, I would have to say the overriding feeling is, is, is we're anticipating a, a good term ahead. Do you think you'll be able to stay open between now and the summer? Oh, I hope so. I truly hope so. Look, from September to Christmas, we had a really good term. Um, you know, there was a huge amount of effort put in in the background to try and keep the school safe. Safety has always been a priority as a special school. And, um, you know, I, I hope that we can maintain a level of safety, keep everybody safe, keep learning and keep doing what we do well, what we do best. Well, Ashling Power, Donald Hegarty, uh, Lorraine, Rian and Alex, thank you all. And from Our Lady of Good Counsel, Special School and Ballon College, it's back to you in Dublin. The impeachment trial of the former U.S. President Donald Trump will resume today in the United States Senate. Democrats have accused him of inciting his supporters to storm the Capitol building on the 6th of January, an attack that left five people dead. Last night, a vote to continue with the trial was passed. Six Republicans sided with Democrats, a number that's far short of the 17 Republican votes required to convict Mr. Trump. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, was following the debate. Last night, we saw the Democrats kick things off with their nine impeachment managers. Now, these are Democratic members of the House of Representatives who will act as the prosecution, really, in this trial. And they began by playing a 13-minute video montage of the storming of the Capitol building. And it was really quite striking. The images were very dramatic. They were violent. They were interspersed then with clips of Donald Trump telling his supporters to fight like hell and telling them to march to the Capitol building. And they also showed tweets sent by the former president while all of this violence was kicking off. Next on the Senate chamber came a debate on the constitutionality of the entire process. Whether or not it is constitutional, try Donald Trump in this way. And Democrats insisted that it is possible to hold an impeachment trial for a president after they leave office. Otherwise, they said presidents could just have free reign and get a January exemption and could do whatever they want in their final days in office. Now, the lead impeachment manager in all of this is Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, and he delivered this very emotional speech recalling the day of the storming of the Capitol building. He had buried his son just the day before. He took his daughter to the Capitol building so that she could be there to witness the counting of the Electoral College votes. Then, of course, as we know, all hell broke loose. They had to run and hide in an office. We can hear now some of what Congressman Jamie Raskin had to say. My youngest daughter, Tabitha, was there with me on Wednesday, January 6th. It was the day after we buried her brother, our son Tommy, and when they were finally rescued over an hour later by Capitol officers, I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol again. People died that day. Senators, this cannot be our future. This cannot be the future of America. We cannot have presidents inciting and mobilizing mob violence against our government. Democrat Jamie Raskin. Brian, he was speaking obviously on behalf of the Democrats who are the prosecutors in in all of this. What did Donald Trump's defense team have to say? 
Yeah, Rachel, we heard from two of Donald Trump's lawyers last night. They delivered their presentations, and their main argument was that this trial is a breach of the Constitution, and it shouldn't be happening at all in the first place, because Donald Trump is no longer president, uh, he has left office, and also they argued that his comments to his supporters about election fraud and telling them to march to the Capitol, that these comments would be protected anyway under freedom of speech. Now, Donald Trump had apparently chopped and changed his lawyers quite a bit and found it difficult to find attorneys that would agree to his approach. So this defense team was hastily assembled in very recent times and to be honest it showed last night one of the lawyers bruce castor delivered this very long rambling address he appeared ill prepared at one stage he praised the other side the democrats for doing such a good job in their opening presentations and he said that because it was so good they had changed their strategy and he was now going first instead of his colleague according to u.s media donald trump was not very happy with all of this he wasn't particularly pleased with the performance of his lawyers After these presentations, there was then this vote on whether or not the trial was constitutional. Six Republican senators voted with the Democrats. One of them, Senator Bill Cassidy, said that he had voted with the Democrats because Donald Trump's lawyers had done such a bad job. In a moment, we're going to hear from Senator Bill Cassidy, but first here's Donald Trump's lawyer, Bruce Castor. If my colleagues on this side of the chamber actually think that President Trump committed a criminal offense. After he's out of office, you go and arrest him. So there is no opportunity where the President of the United States can run rampant in in January, the end of his term, and just go away scot-free. President Trump's team were disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over it, almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments. Now, if I'm an impartial juror, and one side's doing a great job, and the other side's doing a terrible job on the issue at hand, as an impartial juror, I'm going to vote for the side that did the good job. Republican Bill Cassidy. Brian, the trial resumes later on in the day. What can we expect, do you think? Yeah, so last night, Rachel, we had a debate on the constitutionality of all of this. Today, we move on to the actual presentation of evidence. Democrats will go first. They'll speak today and tomorrow. Then it will be the turn of the defense, who will have two days for their arguments. Now, if no witnesses are called, this whole thing could be wrapped up by the middle of next week, maybe even early next week. And that is much, much shorter than Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. And I think a shorter trial suits everybody. Democrats don't want it dragging on too long because it's going to take up the Senate's time and delay Joe Biden getting his legislation through. Republicans obviously don't want this trial at all. And while we saw six of them vote last night with the Democrats, it is highly unlikely that that number would rise to 17. That is the minimum number of Republicans you would need to convict Donald Trump. And many Republicans, I think, are very much latching on to this constitutional argument. They are seeking cover under it because it allows them to object to impeachment and to object to conviction on the grounds that the process is flawed without really passing judgment on what exactly Donald Trump did or what he said. But no doubt there are many Republicans out there that feel that constitutional argument was delivered a blow last night when we saw that poor performance from Donald Trump's lawyers. And that was Brian O'Donovan in Washington. Those proceedings will continue later today. Well, there was even mention of green shoots at the National Public Health Emergency Team briefing yesterday evening. And while in broad terms there has been an improvement with case numbers and hospital admissions falling, plus the initial vaccine rollout, nonetheless, Neffet's Professor Philip Nolan raised concerns about new variants and mobility. Professor Nolan, good morning to you. Good morning, Anya. The good news, of course, is the improvement in the numbers. Is it safe to say at this stage that we're past the worst of the third wave thanks to, to a huge public effort? I think it is. Um, I think if I, if I have one message this morning, it is a message of hope and even some optimism, but also one of realism. So you're right, we've made extraordinary progress. Uh, we've gone from 6,500 cases a day to under 1,000 in a few weeks We've gone from a 14-day instance of 1,500 per 100,000 to 300. We've gone from over 2,000 people in hospital to under 1,000. But I think Roland Lynn put it very well yesterday evening. Last week, by every indicator of the disease, we we had more disease and more severe disease than any point in 2020. We had more cases, we had more people in hospital and ICU. We still have 170 people um, in ICU. Um, that's an extraordinarily high number. So we're just getting below the level we were at at the peak in October. 
Um, we're at about the same stage as we were in, in late April 2020. So we've done really, really well. Um, and and the, 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 the piece of realism is we have no option now but to keep that effort up. Um, we're still a good six weeks away, at least, um, from getting case numbers down close to 100 per day. So we, we should be at, you know, 200 to 400 cases a day going into March. Um, uh, we should be approaching the middle to the end of March in, in the region of 100 to 200 cases a day. Um, so, so and, and also, as you mentioned, we have, um, we have a, a good vaccination programme um, being deployed um, uh, carefully and appropriately and effectively. And, and over the coming months, those two things are going to come together. Our, our own active suppression of the virus and, and increasing protection mm. from the vaccine. Um, so, so in a few weeks' time, uh, we need to be thinking about the, the very careful resumption of some of our priority activities. Yes, uh, if you do get to, say, 100 a day by mid-March, uh, what does that mean for opening up? That's the question people want answered, especially, you know, with these fears now about the new variants of the virus. I think we have to be, it's, it, it's not for me to say now what, what decisions governments should take um, over the coming weeks. Um, I, I mean, I can say that as the levels of disease decrease, it gives government options. And I think we need to be conscious of what, what are our priorities. Um, you know, th this, this pandemic has had a huge impact on the lives of children. Um, if, if our children are a priority, then we adults need to make sacrifices in order to ensure that they can return to education, uh, re return to key aspects of our lives. Um, if our health service is a priority, we need to make sacrifices as healthy citizens in order to make sure we don't place mm -hmm. a further COVID burden on those hospitals so that they can care for people who need care. Um, the, 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 the bottom line here is as, as we collectively drive case numbers down, um, we give our government options uh, to, to reopen key priorities. Um, those key priorities are set out. Uh, they're, they're focused on the education of young people. They're focused on ensuring that our uh, health service um, ha has a minimum level of, of COVID disease to deal with so it can care for others. Um, I, I think another priority as we come into to spring uh, and the, the days get brighter is that we facilitate people doing those things which are most important for their own mental health and resilience. Um, and it also that we think about what are the lowest risk, highest return activities? What are the things that, that we can do that have a minimal risk of COVID transmission that are really important to us? So, so to cut a long story oh, short, for government now, it's about priorities and, and low-risk um, uh, resumption of some activities. But the truth is, um, what the last f year has shown us is uh, there, are, there are some things that it is safe to do and many things, unfortunately, uh, that with this virus it is unsafe to do. Um, you pointed out 50% of people are still going to work. Your concerns about mobility and what does all of that mean for schools reopening, given what you've just said? Well, I, I think, yes, we are concerned about mobility. To, to look at it another way, um, if you had asked me at the beginning of January, would we get to this point? Would people keep their contacts at, at you know, no more than one or two uh, um, uh, per, per day or per 48 hours um, would over half the population work from home and would we get the, the case numbers below a thousand by, by the middle of February? I would have said it's possible uh, but I'm worried that it won't happen. So, so the positive thing to say here is that is as you said at the beginning, people have done an extraordinary job of adhering to the spirit and letter of public health advice. And, and yes, we're a little bit worried when we mm. see even the smallest amount of drift from that. But right now, the truth is, it's a good news story. And all we're saying to people is just just be careful. You know, there's a natural tendency after weeks of this you know, to, to head back into the workplace, 
even though you may not strictly speaking need to. Many people need to attend the workplace and provide essential services. There may be a tendency to, I mean, you know, my own daughter suggested she might pop in for dinner this week and I had to say no. Um, uh, we haven't had a meal together since January, um, but I had to remind myself that now is not the time to do that. So that's all we're doing with that yeah. signal. We, we, we need to keep this up. We need to be careful. We need to check our natural tendency to relax a little bit because the virus will exploit any relaxation that, that, that we indulge in in the coming weeks. And those are the decisions that break our, all our hearts in so many mm. ways, of course, but people are making them, as you say, all over the country. A couple of quick things. Uh, double masking and wearing masks too loosely. Yeah, the, the second is much more important than the first. Uh, um, yes, if you, if you double mask, particularly if you double mask carefully, um, it does give added protection. Um, that protection would only be necessary, frankly, if you're forced into close proximity to other people. Uh, what's more important is, with one mask or two, uh, to remember that you, st you still should keep your distance. The important thing here is multiple measures. And more importantly than considering a second mask is to ask yourself, does my first mask fit well? Is it tied tightly behind the oh, ears? Right. Is it tight around the nose and cheeks? Um, so... So if you're keeping your distance and you have one well-fitting mask, a second mask is probably unnecessary, but we wouldn't discourage anybody, particularly a vulnerable person or somebody who might be meeting a vulnerable person from wearing a second mask if, if the added protection gives them added security. AstraZeneca and the World Health Organization advice that it can be given to all uh, adults over the age of 18, which we're not doing for the over 65s. Um, now, I'm not particularly expert on vaccines you'd be better asking it's a question yeah. of people's minds i know it came out it was queen the butler i think dealt with it wasn't it yeah yes it did and 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 to 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 repeat her i mean the situation here is we ha we have um vaccines that we know to be that are we know that are likely more effective in older people so if the delay is not great uh, if the, the delay is not significant uh, it is better, and that's that's the decision of NIAC and and advice that the chief medical officer and the minister have taken. Um, that given that any delay that might be introduced by that is not significant, it is the best policy to give the vaccine that we think is more effective in older people to older people. All right. Listen, thank you uh, for your time this morning. That's Professor Philip Nolan from Neffet. <laughs> COVID payment shock. Thousands will owe income tax this year, is the front page headline on the Irish Independent this morning. The story by Charlie Weston and Senna Maloney says those on the pandemic unemployment payment who return to work this year will have to pay all the tax owed on the PUP payment this year. Tell us more. Brian Keegan is Director of Public Policy at Chartered Accountants Ireland. Uh, Brian, good morning. Hello, Gavin. Uh, I thought that if you uh, came off this payment and back to work that you had four years to pay the tax back. So what's changed? Um, I think what has really changed is the treatment for 2020. Um, we have to distinguish between 2020 payments and 2021 payments and the usual revenue or funds, the kind of fine dis distinctions that give everybody a fright. For uh, pandemic unemployment, payments, first of all, they're taxable. Most social welfare benefits are taxable. The pandemic unemployment payment is no different. It's really come to public attention because, first of all, it's quite a large payment in, in, in the context of social welfare payments and because, unfortunately, so many of us um, have been re receiving it. But for 2020 payments, the tax liability on the PUP could have been spread over four years. However, the PUP continues to be paid in 2021 and revenue are really immediately collecting the tax due on the 2021 payments by reducing people's tax credits. It's probably worth making the point, Gavin, that this is the normal course of events for taxable social welfare payments. So, you know, for things like uh, illness and, and maternity benefit, this is what normally happens. Um, I think the shock comes from the fact that, first of all, they're changing the way the change is as against 2020 payments, and secondly, that so many people are affected and that the amounts are relatively large. Okay, now, I, I know this can get somewhat confusing. So the payments that were made last year, the tax owed on them is still payable over four years. It's payments this year where the tax is due this year as well. Is that right? 
Um, that's correct, yeah. The, 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 the 2020 liability, you can spread it out over 2021, 2022, 2023, and 2024, typically by reducing the tax credits. The 2021 payments, payments that would have been made since the start of January of this year, the reduction to, uh, to the 2021 tax credits is immediate. So, you know, to take a very, very rough figure, if, if your pandemic unemployment payment is €300 Euros a week, your uh, tax credit will be reduced by €60, Euros, that's 20% of €300 Euros a week, to account for the tax that's due on that €300 payment. And as you receive pandemic unemployment payments, your uh, tax credits will reduce so that revenue, in effect, are collecting in real time, as they call it, uh, the tax due. So, will you face a bill, or is this being deducted from you anyway? It's been deducted from your, if you like to think of it as your kind of your tax-free uh, amount in the yes. year. So, you know, when hopefully, you know, you go back to work, say, in, 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 in a few weeks' time, and the pandemic unemployment payment ceases, everybody has tax credits uh, that they can offset against their earnings, but the amount of the tax credit that you will have if you receive PUP will be less uh, than you might have expected ah. because they're reducing the tax credits to collect tax due in the PUP. It's miserably complicated for first thing in the morning. But the point. But you don't face a bill, is, Brian, is that right? I mean, you're sorry? not going to face a, a bill where you have to, to, to pay money back physically. It, it'll be taken from you anyway, or it'll be taken from your tax credit, is that right? Yeah, that, is, that, that will be the, the case in the vast, uh, vast majority of circumstances. Um, it's coming as a bit of a surprise to people because people are, are, are realising it, perhaps, uh, you know, looking at their, um, their, their, their tax credits and payroll, if people are jointly assessed, one spouse working, the other not, possibly there's an adjustment there. It, it, it's, it's beginning to dawn on people um, that this is happening, and uh, there's been no formal announcement that I'm aware of from Revenue uh, that this is the approach they're taking for 2021, I suppose, from their perspective, to try to be fair. Uh, revenue will say, well, actually, this is our normal practice anyway, but it okay. is really uh, coming as a surprise to a significant number of people, as I say, because of the amount of the PUP involved and also because, unfortunately, so many of us have been receiving it. This is probably an unfair question, Brian, but, but roughly, for, for a lot of people won't be going back to work until at least May or June if we're to, to get some insight into the restrictions that we were talking about earlier on. So how much will they be down at that stage? Well, Gavin, I'd never accuse you of asking me an unfair question. <laughs> but <laughs> look, as, as, as a rule of thumb, um, because there's different rates of PUP, um, it's, it's, it's 20% of your PUP per week. So let's say, for example, to take very, very round figures, if your PUP receipt is, is, is 300 per week and you have for 10 weeks, uh, well, that's um, 300 by 10. Uh, that's 3,000. 20% of 3,000 is 600. So you can expect your tax credits to have been reduced um, by 600 when you go back to work. And I hope my mental arithmetic is correct this time of the morning. Fair play to you. Brian Keegan, Director of Public Policy at Chartered Accountants Ireland. Thank you. the Super Bowl experience triumphed over youth who would have thought Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl the biggest sporting event in the United States beating the holders Kansas City Chiefs 31 to 9 Brady who had 20 glittering years with the New England Patriots is the oldest player to play in the Super Bowl he's 43 years and 188 days old he saw off Patrick Mahomes the dynamic young quarterback for Kansas and the rest he here is Tom Brady. I'm so proud of all these guys down here. Everything we uh, dealt with all year. We had a rough month in November, but VA had all the confidence in us. The team had a lot of confidence. We came together at the right time. I think we knew this was going to happen tonight, didn't we? We ended up playing our best game of the year. You got reunited with Gronk twice in the end zone tonight. You found AB in the end zone. Fournette caught a touch, uh, scored a touchdown. I mean, it was a bunch of AFC guys come over, come to Tampa. They all believed in you, too, to have this night as a possibility. And here you are. With all that you've done, where does this rank? Is this the crowning achievement? Uh, I'm not putting any, um, making any comparisons. I, you know, being down here and experiencing it with this group of guys is, um, every year is amazing. And this team is world champions forever. You can't take it away from us, so... Tom Brady. We can go live to the US and talk to Steve Futterman of CBS News. Steve, it's all about Tom Brady. He's being talked about now as the best player of all time. 
Yeah, well, they call him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, he was known as the GOAT before this game. He's done nothing to change people's minds. He is doing things that not only haven't been done before, but no one ever thought they could be done. He is really at an advanced age for a quarterback, 43. He does keep himself in great shape, follows a very strict regimen as far as diet and, and keeping in shape, but still to do this, and it was a dominating game. It wasn't really even close. Uh, the, the Buccaneers jumped out to a 21-6 to lead at halftime, and it was really pretty much over at halftime. Brady throwing three touchdowns, 21 for 29, uh, just a very high completion percentage. It was just a great game for him. We shouldn't forget about the Kansas City defense, or rather the Tampa Bay defense, because they just really stifled anything Kansas City was trying to do. The, the Chiefs have a very dynamic offense as well. They could not score one touchdown. They had to settle for three field goals. So uh, th this another crowning achievement for Tom Brady. Sure is. I'm sure no one was brave enough to ask him, is he done now? Is he going to retire? Uh, tell so, Steve, was it a more muted event because of COVID? It was a bit. I mean, if you watched it on television, it looked pretty much the same. There were around 25,000 fans inside the stadium, which normally holds up to 66,000. Uh, they had around 30,000 cutouts along with the fans. So if you were watching the game, it didn't look that unusual. But obviously, uh, the, the, the atmosphere inside the stadium was a bit muted. You did not have the, the rousing crowd cheering that you might normally have and this actually sort of hurt Tampa Bay this was the first time a Super Bowl team played the game in its home stadium the Super Bowl is awarded years in advance we've never had a team make it to the Super Bowl when they were the host team so you normally would have had a much louder crowd rooting for Tampa Bay so I guess it might have been even worse for Kansas City if they had the normal crowd there. But uh, this is, like I said, a great achievement. Uh, Tom Brady, by the way, has made it very clear he wants to play at least till he's 45, so at least a couple more years. Nothing against Patrick Mahomes. He won the, the Super Bowl last year with the Chiefs. He has a great career ahead of him, but this was Tom Brady's day. Absolutely. Steve, great to talk to you as always. Great having you on the program. Steve Futterman of CBS News, live from the United States. The lead agency for monitoring and controlling the spread of infectious diseases in Europe was hampered by a catalogue of problems when the coronavirus pandemic struck. That's according to an investigation by the EU Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly. The European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC, struggled in the early days of the crisis, the report says, because of a lack of resources, poor data from member states and incomplete information from China, where the pandemic originated. The European Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly, joins us now. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Mary. Now, you're, you're finding that the ECDC was hampered by a lack of resources, by a lack of mandate. How did that impact the early responses as this virus spread through Europe? And we remember those catastrophic consequences that, that we saw in Italy and in Spain in the early days. Well, the ECDC was set up originally, um, it was proposed in 2003 and it started working in, in 2005. And it was set up as a result of the scare everybody got over the SARS outbreak. Um, and it was intended to be a, a central hub in the EU, whereby it would get all of the data it needed from the member states in order to prepare for a crisis for a pandemic such as the one we've been experiencing. However, while it was given a very authoritative sounding title, the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, it was not actually given the powers that, would, that should have gone along with that. And primarily the power to seek or to get uh, information from the member states um, in relation to their preparedness uh, for a crisis such as this. So when the pandemic struck, it simply did not have the information it needed, whether it was about the um, ICU capacity, the testing capacity uh, of the member states, the hospital capacities of the member states, in order to give the sort of adv advice that would have been needed in order to mitigate the crisis right from the start. When you're saying it's it's toothless, or at least in those early days it was, it was without the ability to do the job that uh, we thought it was designed to do. Um, so why why if it was caught between the, the Commission and the Member States, why why was it set up in this way? 
Well, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, um, the health competence remains with the member states. So health and public health in particular is not a competence of, of the EU. So it was almost, I won't call it a trick that was played on the public, but certainly the spin uh, around the ECDC when it was set up was that it would have the sort of powers that really the EU didn't have. Um, and so when it was, was set up originally, uh, great claims were made in relation to what it would do, but it was absolutely dependent on cooperation from the member states. And if it wasn't going to get that cooperation from the member states, then quite simply it couldn't do uh, what uh, it was claimed it could do. Uh, and over the years, when it has attempted to sort of really get a grip on the capacity of the member states, it has met with resistance because there are sensitivities uh, from the member states around league tables, shall we say, being created from the information they might give uh, to the ECDC. And when information was given to them and analysis was made by the ECDC, the member states were were very um, were very insistent that that information would remain solely with them and it would not be used in any any really public way. Are they still in the same boat? Are the systems uh, still as weak as you're, as you're saying in those early days? And if so, how big a problem is that? Because this agency ha has a role in monitoring the rollout of vaccines. Well, it does. And again, for that, it is dependent on information that it gets from the member states. So so really, it, it takes in what the member states tell it in relation to the rollout and puts it out uh, on its website and through other means of communication. Then we had an issue last week when it uh, misrepresented by mistake, obviously, the the amount of vaccines that had been uh, distributed by, by the Irish government, by the Irish Health Administration. Uh, so as you can see, it's still dependent on the member states for that sort of uh, information. Now, the Commission has made proposals they say to strengthen it but when you look into the detail you see that it's not actually giving it additional powers and it will again be reliant on the member states for information so information is power and without that information any agency such as the ECDC simply cannot give the sort of um, uh, timely and full forensic advice that it needs to give at times like this. So was it wrong then when it was saying that uh, Europe had the capacity to deal with the virus, that it had uh, the testing capacity across the EU laboratories, because it didn't in fact have the information to make a finding like that? No, self-evidently it was wrong. And, and I mean, in a way, this, this was the, the statements that they made towards the end of January when cases were emerging in France and in Germany and elsewhere, saying that the European Union had the capacity to deal with it and unambiguously saying that was really partly what prompted this uh, investigation uh, by my office because at one point it was saying you know the testing capacity is fine uh, Europe can do 8,000 a month uh, and in the second wave of the pandemic um, Germany for example was doing 1 million a week or some some huge figure so they were certainly behind the curve but they were also making and this was down to them and, and really not down to the mandate um, over optimistic and very positive sounding noises which would have reassured people and within weeks they were being forced to to change tack and to really face up to the reality of the situation which by then uh, by that time had got out of control. But, but Emily, we're in a third wave. This pandemic has not been dealt with. Is anything different now with the ECDC? Well, of course, the ECDC is only one part of the control of the pandemic. And obviously, as we all well know, decisions by governments are instrumental in in uh, in, in dealing with it in relation to quarantine, border closures and, and all of that. I mean, I think it's too late now to do anything in relation to, to the ECDC. Obviously, the member states need to be uh, as efficient as, as possible in, in, in giving information to it so that it can in turn distribute their analysis. But really, it will only be when new regulations kick in and when member states in particular because it is we talk about the commission but it's really the member states form the board of the ECDC they control the ECDC so they will have to decide uh, whether it remains uh, toothless or whether it will actually live up to the very fancy title that it was given when it was created back in 2003. Before you go, just your, your view on what happened over a week ago now when the European Commission triggered Article 16 of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you understand, and you're a Brussels Indus insider, you know how it works, do you understand how they could do that after all those years of negotiation? Well, it was extraordinary, and I think it, it smacked of panic, and it also smacked of, I think, the pressure that the Commission and others are under to get the vaccine uh, vaccines rolled out, especially when 
people were pointing to what was happening in, in the UK and the United States. But of course, the UK and the United States only had to worry about themselves, not anybody else, whereas the, the Commission had taken, and the member states had taken very much a community approach. But in relation to Article 16, yeah, clearly they had turned their legal brain uh, on and their political brain off. And they had also failed to uh, to reach out to the people who, who really knew what the, the sensitivities of the situation were, including Michel Barnier and, and the Irish Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness. But in fairness to her, the Commission President, Madame von der Leyen, has come out with her hands up. Uh, she'll also be speaking in the plenary session uh, in the Europe, before the European Parliament tomorrow, and I'm sure the Irish MEPs, among others, will have many questions for her. Hmm. European Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly, thank you for your time this morning. Farmers across the country say they're closing their gates to dog walkers along popular routes as a result of attacks on livestock. They say there aren't enough sanctions for dog owners who leave their dogs off the lead in mountainous areas. Kieran Sheehan is a sheep farmer in Carlingford in County Louth and he told our reporter Amy Neerida about his experience of trying to protect his animals. I live on the Cooley Peninsula, County Louth and it's a very popular walking route for locals and, and for visitors to the area. We grant access to people to use these walkways. Some people, when they come to the mountain, they lack an awful lot of respect for what's there. And they'll take their dog and they'll let their dog run loose while it's on the mountain. Once I, I was, I did confront someone that had their dog loose on the mountain. They weren't even looking to see what the dog was doing. The dog would be at anything. And uh, this is in the same area where my sheep to graze. They attacked into me. So who was I to say anything to them? They could do what they wanted to do. And that's okay, I could deal with that. But more people came, they also attacked into me as well. So I was at one stage, it was four against one. And uh, we've lost four young sheep on the mountain over the summertime. It's obviously a big financial hit, but I suppose what you need to understand, it, it takes an awful lot of effort to get the sheep there to that stage. It's a lot of work uh, and passion put into breeding them. Just to see, come across these sheep that are injured, broken legs, maimed. And we have another yo. She's the front leg broke and she's after miscarrying. People just don't care. And that was Kieran Sheelan in County Louth speaking to Amy Nereda last night. Joining us now is Sean Dennehy, who's the IFA's National Sheep Chairman. What sort of stories have you been hearing? Um, the stories I've been hearing, Rachel, and thanks for having me thanks for having me on this morning, uh, are, are very similar to what uh, Kieran has experienced. Um, Farmers encountering um, verbal abuse uh, when they're to- when they're telling uh, dog owners to put their dogs on leads, um, you know, intimidation. Um, people putting their dogs back on the leads and leaving them up again a few minutes later when the dog when the farmer's gone out of sight. So they're the kind of things we're in- encountering. Um, that's why we have decided to refuse entry to members of the public on our hill land and our lowland land. Uh, uh, because they they're not adhering to the rules, uh, and we just don't want dogs on our on our dogs on our lands. No dogs we sp- allowed. We spoke to a couple of different walking groups last night who said that they weren't in favour of people bringing their dogs onto the mountains either. Are you reassured to hear that? Yeah, that's reassuring. Mountaineering Ireland, which has uh, fourteen thousand members, came out last week and said that they didn't want uh, people going onto the mountains, the mountains with dogs. Mm. I would have thought as well that most of these people are probably well outside their five kilometres if they're doing this at the moment. Does it continue to be a problem at the moment? Yeah, since COVID started, it has been huge, the amount of people that are going out walking and the amount of dogs that have been bought since the start of COVID as well has has spiralled and and dog prices have gone way up. But uh, that's why we need more legislation around the whole area. Um, we need a single database. We need the authorities to step up to the plate and and uh, you know get more traceability on the dog owners and their dogs and link the two together. And uh, when people and say, and when people say, as no doubt they do, well, it's not practical to keep him on the lead the whole time. He needs exercise. Um, what do you say? Um, we, exercise your dog somewhere else. We don't. We don't. We don't want you uh, exercising your dog on the mountains, running after our sheep. Um, so we, we've tried to we tried to tell people to keep their dogs on the lead, and uh, the, 
the majority of people um, are okay, but some people just flaunt the laws and everybody has to suffer. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Sean Dennehy there, who's the IFA's National Sheep Chairman. Now, Taoiseach Michal Martin told us yesterday morning there needed to be a cooling of the rhetoric between the EU and the UK as both sides prepared to meet in London to discuss the Northern Ireland Protocol row. That meeting between the EU's Maro Sefcovic and the UK's Michael Gove ended last night with both sides repeating their commitment to the Good Friday Agreement and the proper implementation of the protocol and was a good day's work, according to Foreign Minister Simon Coveney. Our Europe editor Tony Connolly has more. Um, if not a meeting of minds, at least an agreement to intensify work on the protocol, Tony. That's right, Anya. I think this was a definite attempt to lower the temperature and to work within the structures that they have. So there's going to be a full meeting of the Joint Committee on the 24th of February and officials will be in contact to try and look at what territory there is to meet some of the concerns of of unionists, of, of the business community and the British government on how the protocol is being implemented. But I think for me, the key line from the statement last night was that both sides would spare no effort in implementing what they agreed in December, not the protocol per se, but what they agreed in December was how to implement the protocol. And on the EU side, there has been a a growing complaint that the UK simply isn't putting into practice what it agreed uh, in terms of those facilitations and flexibilities on how to implement the protocol that were agreed in December. Um, Most notably, the fact that the EU still doesn't have access to the UK's uh, import clearance IT system so that they can monitor in real time, what's mm-hmm. coming into Northern Ireland from from Great Britain, um, and th- the view as well is that simply too many goods are coming in unchecked, uh, undocumented, unverified, not enough physical checks or identity checks at, at um, Northern ports. So clearly, the UK last night has said it would spare no effort uh, to to do those things that the both sides signed up to in December. Um, And then at that point, I think the EU will say, well, let's see what further pragmatic steps we can Mm -hmm. take to make the protocol a bit easier. So there will be these uh, intensive talks for the rest of the month, Tony, uh, until that meeting on the 24th. But, you know, there's pressure on Michael Gove, given the DUP's calls for the Article 16 to be invoked by number 10 and to be replaced and scrapped. And there's pressure on Maro Sefcovic, isn't there, from many European capitals who don't want to give the UK too much leeway in the way that they interpret Brexit. That's right. Uh, I mean, I think both men uh, tried to steer this process away from those those rocks on, on either side, as, as you have described. And I think it was interesting that both men met for quite a bit of last night's meeting without officials present. They have a good working relationship. Um, they're, they're, Michael Gove has often praised Maros Shevchevich for his pragmatic approach to problem solving. Uh, but it's true that member states feel that they invested for nearly five years in the Irish border. They believe that the Irish border problem has now been solved and they don't want to have to reopen everything because there are problems at the sea border. They believe the protocol is there, it has to be uh, lived up to and and made work. And they also believe that it is far too early to say that it's not working or should be scrapped. It's only six or seven weeks into the process. Um, and they've also said, according to Mara Shevchevich's letter, that some of the things that the UK are looking for they could have if they agree to align themselves more closely with EU uh, veterinary and food safety and animal health rules. And of course, the UK has refused to do that. Uh, So, you know, there there are still, you know, big, big differences in perspective here. All right, Tony, thank you very much indeed for that. That's our Europe editor, Tony Connolly. 
Well, one year ago today, we nearly had two hours of voting under our belts. Yes, it was general election 2020. And the result, an almost three-way tie between Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael, that resulted in a historic coalition. No, not between those three. And that was nothing to the changes brought about by a global pandemic. But it has also changed the way politicians themselves do their job. 48 first time were TDs elected last year on the cusp of all that change and some of them have been speaking to Mary Regan of our political staff who joins us now. Mary, a year ago, I mean, it feels like it never happened, the election. It feels like another lifetime. I know sometimes it feels like we're all operating in dog years these days, but I think it's fair to say that this has been really an era-defining year for Irish politics because... If you look back just at the election itself, it was the point in which this two and a half party system, which had so dominated Irish politics, but which had already been decline, been in decline. This was the point at which it was finally shattered, uh, more or less for good. And then if you look at what happened after that election, there was really no obvious path to forming a government. And even before then, the tentative talks on coalition pick could begin, the global pandemic arrived here. So we had this really extraordinary situation where a caretaker government was making these huge decisions while a pathway to government was found. But it was, of course, a very unusual one that brought together Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Something previously unthinkable happened, but almost went unremarked upon because there was so much focus on the pandemic. And all the while then, politicians themselves, like the rest of us, they were trying to figure out new ways of operating. And for the 48 first time TDs, this was quite difficult because it meant that they weren't so much just learning on the job itself, but they were, just, you know, inventing a job or a role for themselves. So the practical side of not having a government, first of all, meant, for example, many first time TDs didn't have an office in Leinster House. They had no firm base of which to operate from. Um, they also found it difficult to forge the usual, you know, alliances that they would with other TDs, not just in their own party, but across party lines. And most of all, they really found themselves in some ways isolated from their constituents. So for a first time TD, you know, that sort of constituency focus is a huge element of their job. And I spoke to Fianna Fáil, Cork East TD, James O'Connor. Now at 23, he was 22 when he was elected last year. He's the youngest TD in the House. And he said that lack of contact with constituents has been a really hard part. Much of the job of being a TD is engaging with our community. Uh, it's out travelling around the constituency, getting to meet different representative groups and, and individuals as well. Uh, and obviously that is something that we've all been really restricted from. And it's quite an important part of being a, a first-time TD uh, is doing that. So I, I badly miss the, the interaction with people. Um, in the, within Leinster House and, and within the houses of the Oireachtas, you know, we still get to know our colleagues. We meet uh, every day uh, through work when we are sitting in, uh, sitting in the doll. Um, so, but it, it obviously is different. There's no more, uh, no, no more. I, I think direct interaction uh, and conversations as much as would have happened before, of course, because of social distancing and other measures as well. So, uh, it does change the dynamic of I think the interpersonal relationships between uh, politicians. That's James O'Connor of Fianna Fáil there, and Mary. Of course, the the pandemic it changed the whole nature of how the doll has functioned met James O'Connor on his walk between Leinster House and the National Convention Centre where the doll is regularly sitting these days to allow social distancing. Now, TDs, I, fair, I think it's fair to say, just don't like this having to go back and forth. Not only does it eat into their time, but it also means there's a very curtailed nature to the sittings because for a start, proper doll and committee sittings didn't get off the ground and up and running for months until after the election in any event because of the time it took to form the government. But now the doll has been sitting shorter hours and fewer days in this latest uh, round of restrictions. There are limits on the number who can attend the convention centre chamber at any given time. And uh, I spoke to Claire Curran. She's a Sinn Féin TD elected for Roscommon Galway. And she says she's found this aspect quite frustrating. It's definitely been, again, more difficult. You know, you want to be in there, you want to be raising the issues. I'm lucky in that I'm the party spokesperson on social protection and rural development, so that had given me a good standing in that I had my regular questions for a time there, and that has helped. But in relation to raising local issues that you want to be getting up on, it has been made an awful lot harder. The, the numbers are reduced, and again, speaking time is reduced as well. I suppose the one thing that's changed an awful lot in the last few years is access to the team 
CD across all social media platforms. That's a big way that people are getting in touch. I've done a number of engagements with local local organisations and that's been a really good help. But again, they've all been online. So you're losing out in that if you're meeting a disability group, for example, you're not going into the centre, you're not meeting the people. It's very different. That's Claire Caran there of Sinn Féin. But I presume, Mary, like the rest of us, they're coming up with new ways of doing things. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's changes already afoot before the election or before the pandemic ever struck in which an awful lot of politicians' work was moving online. Now, they're saying as a result of the pandemic, much of what would traditionally be done in their constituency clinics has moved on to telephone and email. But another big change, particularly for a younger generation of voters, is that they're contacting Uh, politicians through Instagram, through Twitter, through Facebook. And Gary Gannon uh, of the Social Democrats, he has been holding Zoom meetings, for example, on single issues, such as, for example, the Leaving Cert has been a big one for him. And he says this has resulted in a huge change because you have, for example, a generation of voters who mightn't be drawn to a TD particularly based on on their location, but more based on the issues that they represent. It's been a fascinating year, but when you imagine being a TD, you imagine sitting in Dáil Éireann and kind of having the to and fro of parliamentary debate with a full chamber. And what actually emerges from me now is I'm regularly in the convention centre and it's me, a minister and a couple of other TDs. So, I mean, that's different. Previously, kind of politics would have been people came to a constituency office for the clinic. Actually, that hasn't been my experience at all now. I have to be available on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I have to be doing the public meetings on Zoom. And the public meetings on Zoom means that they're now no longer just local meetings. They're people dialing in from all over the country. So I think I'm a lot more available. My, um, there's an expectation more to be a national politician than just a politician for Dublin Central. But, you know, I found that quite fascinating and it's probably been a little bit beneficial. Social Democrats TD for Dublin Central, Gary Gannon there. Mary, thanks very much. Our political reporter, Mary Regan. Weddings have been cancelled, couples have been separated and many a single person has started seriously considering hibernation in order to get through this pandemic. It has been a miserable year in so many ways. Have people given up on love? Our reporter, Jonah Sullivan, has been finding out. It was a long-distance relationship. It fell apart. We've postponed our wedding on four different occasions now. There is a level of hopelessness. It's been a dramatic year, and the pandemic has presented many challenges, not least when it comes to dating. Like, I met someone a couple weeks ago, and he tried to hold my hand, and... As a reflex, I said, ew, no COVID. (laughs) And I never heard from him again. Camelia is living in Dublin and has been trying to date while abiding by COVID restrictions. It's possible to go on a walking date, perhaps, but it's so cold outside. You walk and you keep on walking and then you're just frozen blue and you're like, all right, see you later. And you never see each other again. This may be why Galway matchmaker Mairead Lachman says people are beating down her virtual door at the moment. A lot of the clients that come to me would be people in their late 30s, their 40s. Um, they did live through a recession, we'll say, that lasted up to 10 years. So they focused on maybe their career, rebuilding businesses and getting back on their feet and everything. And to be kind of in this situation now, a lot of my clients, you know, they live alone so also now they're working from home alone so the level of loneliness as well um where some people would have used their house the base to wash their clothes and put their head down and you know jump back out the door again and go off and do things for the weekend but for a lot of my clients now loneliness is there hopelessness i'm hearing a lot more female clients talking about um getting their eggs frozen it's all enough have many couples finally deciding on that trip down the aisle. My name is Rachel Janaki and I'm the buyer for bridal jewellery and general fine jewellery in Fields Jewellers. Business is really, really good. Really? Like, really good. Yeah, like, you would be surprised at this time and with everything that's happening that it would be, you know, a little bit dodge, but it's actually been really good. 
people are continuing to buy engagement rings. People are definitely continuing to buy engagement rings without a doubt. We've seen double digit figures increase. Of course, getting engaged doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to get married. Lauren Fields is a GP in County Meath. Her wedding to pilot Nick Gammon has been cancelled four times. Yeah, it has been. Uh, it's been difficult. We're worn down really with the plans and there's only so much you can do in terms of rescheduling. And now I suppose the uncertainty really of, of Nick's job in aviation going forward, it's hard to know really when we'll we'll get to go ahead and have the wedding in future and will it be the one that we'd planned and wanted they say that things just cannot grow beneath the winter snow but if you want a true impossible improbable pandemic love story then meet paula byrne from county leash paula was bored one day last october and entered a caption competition for a painting by local artist Kieran Highland. And luckily for me, that was Kieran's favourite caption for that competition. So I won the painting, which I was absolutely thrilled about. And we just started um, just having a bit of crack and a bit of banter back and forward. I was messaging him and said, we should probably meet up for a coffee. What do you think? Now, I got no hop off him that evening, so I kind of said, well, sure, look, that's okay. But the next day, he messaged me and said, well, what do you think? Should we risk it? And we did that then at the end of the week. And sure, as soon as I get out of the car and saw his lovely smiley face, and that was kind of it, really. Kieran, what did you think when you got this message, like on social media going, hi, do you think we should meet for coffee? I honest to God, I, at first I was just like, what? I don't know. I didn't even know what she looked like or anything. And then I just thought, sure, there's no dating game going on and she's in leash. So I said, why not? And that was it. I knew the minute she got out of the car then. And you decided to move in together just before Christmas? Yeah, I look like we knew, we knew. Like, I'm always a bit funny with all that. It's like the one and all that wishy-washy stuff. But this definitely is it. Like, And I think we all want to see Kieran's lovely smiley face now. A lovely piece there from Joan O'Sullivan. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.